And we will continue the feasting for as long as the food remains as good as this. It's great uh, to enjoy that fellowship together. As we move on to the next part of our evening, I want to say a warm welcome uh, to those of you who are visiting. I see one or two slightly less familiar faces today. It's great to have you with us. My name is Steve Jeffrey. I'm one of the pastors here at All Saints. It's great to have you uh, here at midweek. You should all have a handout in front of you that is entitled Praying for God's Judgment, Part 1. That's what we're going to be looking at this evening. I'm going to lead us in prayer, and then we're going to begin this evening's uh, introduction to another psalm, and uh, actually another cluster of themes in the Psalter, which we haven't talked about, at least not in this series, and I think it may be helpful for us to do so. So let's pray together, and then we'll begin. Merciful and gracious Father, we're thankful to you for your word, the Bible, the whole of it, every part of it being breathed out by the Spirit of God and useful for teaching, reproof, encouragement, that the man of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. We confess that everything that was written in former ages was written for our instruction, that we may have hope. And as we come tonight to... uh, a cluster of psalms exemplified by one psalm in particular, Psalm 5, which are perhaps neglected because it's hard for Christians to see how they're useful. We pray you'd open our eyes to see wonderful things in your word. Help us, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. I want briefly to introduce the subject for this evening before I read the psalm because, bear with me one second. The title, Praying for God's Judgment, should be enough to alert you to the fact that we're going to be talking about something which is a little unusual and warrants some explanation. My aim in these sessions here, while we're gathering uh, midweek, at least for the first few weeks or months, is to work my way through some of the Psalms with you. And I want to draw attention to major themes in the Psalms by talking about examples within the Psalter that exemplify those themes. And so we've talked about Psalms 1, 2, and 3, which are kind of like the introduction to the Psalter. We talked about Psalm 8. We looked at Psalm 19. You had Pastor Shaw on Psalm 23. I did Psalm 22. There's a whole bunch of uh, themes in those Psalms. Uh, Meditating on the law of God, Psalm 1. Showing reverence for the Son of God, Psalm 2. Enduring suffering in the name of the Lord, Psalm 3. The glory of humanity as the pinnacle of God's creation, Psalm 8. The word of God again as the pinnacle of God's revelation, Psalm 19. You've got prophecies of the Messiah, Psalm 22. You have psalms of comfort, Psalm 23. You also have what are called by scholars imprecatory psalms imprecatory psalms, or as I learned this afternoon by talking to Pastor Shaw, imprecatory psalms. (laughs) Is this another word that I have to translate on the fly, or are you all going to do it for me? I think it's probably fairest that I should do the translating on the fly and not you. It's great. Coming to America, learn a whole new language. Imprecatory psalms. So what are imprecations? (laughs) Sorry. What are imprecations? You can see where we get it from, right, can't you? What are imprecations? Imprecations 
our prayers that God would act in judgment against our enemies. That's what an imprecation is. And the Psalms are full of them. Uh, One of the earliest Psalms, Psalm 2 actually, contains imprecations, or at least hints at it, Psalm 3, Psalm 5. There are many other Psalms. Psalm 137, perhaps the most lurid, with its prayer, and I quote, O daughter of Babylon, doomed to destruction, blessed shall he be who repays you with what you have done to us. Blessed shall he be who takes your little ones and dashes them against the rock. So reads the word of God. And you might ask yourself the question, well, why on earth would a preacher occupy our Wednesday evening with this kind of thing? Nobody else does this. Uh, You know, I've been to church quite happily for my whole life and nobody's ever read Psalm 137 verses 8 and 9. Like, why are we getting it now? And my response to that is, well, exactly. If we are going to be men and women of our word, if we are going to be men and women of integrity, who mean it when we say that we believe that all scripture is breathed out by God and is profitable, useful for teaching, instruction, edification, training in righteousness. If we're going to be Bible Christians, it just isn't good enough for us to neglect those parts of the Bible that are difficult to understand or which cause us discomfort. Frankly, I could, I could easily understand the reaction of somebody, perhaps somebody who's a Christian, certainly people who aren't Christians, who come to us and say, well, look, come on, you Bible people, what do you make of this? It's in your Bible. And I have some sympathy with them if we can't at least point to some kind of an answer. Don't you feel the same way? If somebody's, imagine somebody who had been raised in the Christian faith, but as they'd grown a little bit older, they'd they decided to ask these kinds of questions and they couldn't find any answers. And they concluded, well, these Christians, you know, they kind of give lip service to the Bible and they like the nice squishy bits that everybody likes. But when it comes to the rough edges, the sharp edges, the serrated edges, they kind of pretend they're not there. They just ignore them. I have a lot of sympathy with people like that. And one of the things I want to do is actually to try to give an answer to people who may profess faith in Christ or may not, but want to know, what do we do with these nasty bits? That's not my only aim, of course. I also want to help all of us to understand these parts of the Bible, because they're parts of the Bible. They're given by God. They're they're songs that Jesus would have prayed and sung. And we have to, have to wrestle with them. Otherwise, our faith will be stunted and... Lacking in something, we might not know what, but it will be lacking in something. But I have to give you a, a warning up front. This is not the kind of answer that can be tweeted. The, the right answers to the difficult questions are answers that are going to take some time to digest, to digest and to process. So on the handout you've got in front of you, you've got part one. Midway through the afternoon, I realised I needed to insert that because I'm going to need to do part two. 
By about 4.30 or quarter to five, I realised part three was probably coming. (laughs) And the reason is because it's not good enough, is it, just to give shallow and superficial and lip service-y kind of answers to these questions. I actually think that this portion of our study of the Psalms has the potential really to change our perspective on some things. And I urge you to bear with me and bear with each other. Maybe take two or three weeks, maybe four weeks, as we try and figure out what's going on here. Because if we're going to be men and women of the word, we have to be men and women of our word when we say that we believe that the whole of the Bible is inspired. Now, before I go any further and look at the particular imprecatory psalm I want to talk about tonight, I need to give credit where credit is due. And credit is due, in this case, to uh, the Reverend Dr. Stephen G. Jenkins, who is a friend of mine, uh, lives in England, actually lives in Wales now, where he teaches at a theological seminary. And this 493-page book is his PhD thesis. It's entitled Retribution in the Canonical Psalter. And it was when I started reading this that I realized, yes, there's a little more here than I'd thought. And so a number of the things I'm going to say today are the result of my reflections on what he's written. Um, There are one or two points where I might be saying things that differ from what he said. I'm actually going to try and get him on the podcast at some point soon so that you'll all be able to hear him, hear somebody else who knows how to say imprecatory incorrectly. Um, uh, But credit where credit's due, uh, I owe a lot to him, and if anybody wants to buy that book, it's probably $350 from some academic publisher somewhere. He gave me a copy because I, re- I helped him uh, with... <laughs> it's ridiculous, I know. I helped him before he submitted it just to kind of proofread it and stuff. But all the things that are wrong are my fault. All the things that are good are probably owed to him. So, with that introduction, let me raise the problem of the imprecatory psalms by reading Psalm 5. Then I'm going to tell you how we don't deal with it, or them. And then I'm going to give you some pointers... Uh, there are six numbered, there are actually seven I'm going to give you, there we are, that's better isn't it, seven, Uh, about how we should seek to read the imprecatory psalms. Then we're going to come back next week and look at another one and feed some more biblical insights into it, I hope. And then we're actually going to sing Psalm 5 tonight with the assistance of Mr. Whittlesey and I might even play the piano if I, anyway, if we can't find somebody better, which probably we can, anyway, So Psalm 5, to the choir master for the flutes, a psalm of David. Give ear to my words, O Lord, consider my groaning. Give attention to the sound of my cry, my King and my God, for to you do I pray. O Lord, in the morning you hear my voice. In the morning I prepare a sacrifice for you and watch. For you are not a God who delights in wickedness. Evil may not dwell with you. The boastful shall not stand before your eyes. You hate all evildoers. You destroy those who speak lies. The Lord abhors the bloodthirsty and deceitful man, but I, through the abundance of your steadfast love, will enter your house. I will bow down toward your holy temple in the fear of you. Lead me, O Lord, in your righteousness because of my enemies. Make straight your way before me, for there is no truth in their mouth. Their inmost self is destruction. Their throat is an open grave. They flatter with their tongue. Make them bear their guilt, O God. Let them fall by their own counsels, because of the abundance of the transgressions, cast them out. For they have rebelled against you. But let all who take refuge in you rejoice. Let them ever sing for joy and spread your protection over them, that those who love your name may exult in you. For you bless the righteous, O Lord. 
You cover him with favor as with a shield. So read Psalm 5. You can see it's a psalm of imprecation, especially in the second half on the right-hand column. From verse 10 onward, there are prayers that God would act in judgment against the wicked about whom the psalm speaks. So let me first then go through six wrong or incomplete ways of understanding the imprecatory psalms. Some of these are completely wrong. Some are just okay but partial and, or perhaps distorted slightly. The first way, just ignore them. Right. The second way, they're sinful prayers and they don't belong in the Bible at all. This view reflects the fact that the Bible is not the inspired word of God, is a kind of mishmash of religious musings, and to the extent that it ought to be good, these don't fit. Um, This view is actually, or something like it, is quite common in kind of religious studies literature and in in, um, among some scholars who think of themselves as operating within a Christian framework. But um, basically what this says is that the Bible as such isn't an inspired by God document. And to the extent that it's any good, well, if you want a good document, these are bad, and it would be bad to pray them, we should get rid of them. So far, not so good, right? Option three. They're sinful prayers, typical of the judgmental God of the Old Testament, and Christians have nothing to learn from them. This is a variation on the second view, but actually is more like the kind of view you might find among, albeit deeply confused, Christians. It's like the logical conclusion of the idea that in the Old Testament, you've got a completely different way of operating from what's going on in the New Testament. In the Old Testament, you've got this kind of vengeful, jealous, angry God. And in the New Testament, you've got this um, loving Jesus, gentle, meek, mild, forgiving, merciful, gracious showing steadfast love to a thousand generations of those who love him. Also, that's the Old Testament. Yeah, you get the point, right? But there are many Christians whose view of the Bible is shaped far more by a caricature of it than by actually having read it. And for them, the way they think of it is, well, the Old Testament's full of all that nasty stuff, and Jesus comes along and sort of sweetens it all up by promising forgiveness. And these are typical of that kind of Old Testament judgmental God. Good job we're not, you know, in that sort of pre-Christian, ethically primitive phase of human life. Option three. Option four is a little different. And this one, in one of its variations, in fact, a couple of its variations, uh, is actually espoused by people that you may have heard of, people you may have read or even rightly, in some contexts, admire. The fourth way of understanding these psalms is to say, quote, they're sinful prayers, but Christians can learn from them, even though we shouldn't pray them. Now, this is a slightly odd thing to say. So how, how could you learn from something that's sinful if it's a prayer? It's like, this is the sort of prayer you're not supposed to pray. Is that it? And the answer is, well, yes, really. It's a prayer. It's a sinful prayer. It's a, it's a sort of prayer that if you prayed it according to its sort of surface meaning, 
You could only pray that as a sinful act. It would be wrong for you to do it. But nonetheless, it's in the Bible, and the Bible is the word of God. And so what it's doing is it's recording sinful prayers. Just like the Bible records the words of um, the wicked or the fool who says in his heart there is no God. The fool does say in his heart there is no God. And the sinful prayers do pray Psalm 137 verses 8 and 9 or Psalm 5. You see how it works? Now, the question then is, well, what would you learn from them? And there are two kinds of things you might, or two kinds of ways you might learn from them. I suppose there's a third way, which is you might just learn what not to pray. (laughs) But it goes without saying if it's a sinful prayer. But the two routes to learning from sinful prayers are first, allegorical. Now, some of you uh, will have heard of the allegorical method of interpretation. The way that allegorical interpretation works, roughly speaking, is by arbitrarily assigning symbolic significance to things in the Bible. That's different from the path of biblical symbolism that you've heard Pastor Neil uh, and myself and Pastor Shaw uh, employ all the time. The Bible is full of symbolic language, And the way that we get at the meaning of the symbols of the Bible is from reading the Bible, yeah? But seeing how the language of uh, symbolism and symbolic objects and symbolic actions is developed throughout the scriptures. You hear this from Pastor Neil and Pastor Shaw and myself all the time. But that's different from allegorical interpretation because what allegorical interpretation does is just arbitrarily to assign meanings to things in the text of scripture. And the Great, 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 great godfather of allegorical interpretation is a man by the name of Oregon. And my friend Stephen Jenkins cites Oregon's reading of Psalm 137. It goes like this, quote, The little ones, remember the little ones whose heads are bashed on the rock? The little ones of Babylon, which signifies confusion, Babel, Babel, Babylon, confusion, are those troublesome, sinful thoughts which arise in the soul, and he who subdues them by striking, as it were, their heads against the firm and solid strength of reason and truth, is the man who dasheth the little ones against the stones, and he is therefore truly blessed. Right? So, I know the, the psalm says, blessed is one who bashes the heads of little ones against rocks. Obviously, that would be a bad thing to pray, but it'd be a really good thing to drive out your sinful thoughts by the light of reason and truth. And you might think, where on earth does he get the idea that the little ones are like sinful thoughts and the rock is like reason and truth? And the answer is, exactly. Right? There's no warrant in the Bible for making that association. Before you think it's ridiculous, hands up if you've heard of C.S. Lewis. Yeah, come on. Hands up if you, put your hands up if you've heard of C.S. We've all heard of C.S. Lewis. One of the most influential Christians of our age. I mean, he, he died in the 20th century. Well, C.S. Lewis writes, and I quote, the little ones of Psalm 137 are, quote, the infantile beginnings of small indulgences, small resentments, which may one day become dipsomania, that's alcoholism, or settled hatred. That's C.S. Lewis. Now, I love C.S. Lewis, but now you know that he's not right about everything. You probably knew that already because of the end of the last battle. Uh, But let the hero understand. Right. But that's C.S. Lewis. 
Now, on the one hand, I, I want to sympathize with this because it, it isn't easy to understand what that psalm means. And I promise, Lord being my helper, we're going to come to that. And I want to give you an account of what it actually means, that it actually isn't what you might think it means, but it's actually faithful to what Scripture says. You're going to have to be patient and wait. But you can sympathize with the motive, can't you? For finding some kind of symbolic or, 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 or allegorical significance in those things. The other way that Christians might learn from them, even though we shouldn't pray them, is by what we might call psychological catharsis. The point here is that they're sinful prayers. We shouldn't pray them, but sometimes what happens is that we really, really, really want to pray them because we're so angry. And Scripture gives us words to pray if we are sinfully angry and sinfully want to say those things. And we sort of get it out of our system so that we don't have to act on it. That's Walter Brueggemann, very, very famous Old Testament scholar. And again, I want to say, Meh. no, that's completely wrong. <laughs> Fifth option, they're righteous prayers. Well, that's a step in the right direction. But Christians shouldn't pray them today. Either because, option A, they're only for the past. These were prayers that our forefathers in the faith under the older covenants were right to pray. Or, these are only for the future. They're about the day of judgment. The, fi- the future judgment of God. This is, that's what they relate to. Now, this is where it gets slightly more complicated. Because this is true as far as it goes, correct? It's true in what it affirms and just wrong in what it denies. It's true that they're righteous prayers... And I want to say they absolutely were right to pray them under the Old Covenant era. And they do have some relation to the final day of judgment. True. The problem is with the second half, but Christians shouldn't pray them today. I want to suggest that that's wrong. And I'm going to have to justify that in the next two or three three weeks. But that's option six. And finally, option five, sorry. And finally, option six. They're righteous prayers. And they can be prayed today, but only by one person, only by Jesus. This is probably, I think, this combined with 5B is probably the most common cluster of views among thoughtful, Bible-believing Christians today. If you've got a thoughtful, Bible-believing Christian who wants to say, yeah, they're righteous prayers, they're prayed in the past, yes, they'll be prayed concerning the last judgment, yes, Jesus can pray them because Jesus is perfectly righteous, but still we shouldn't pray them today. So again, right in what it affirms, I want to suggest wrong in what it denies. So what do we do with them? Well, like I said, and like I'll keep saying probably two or three more times tonight, lest we forget, you're not going to receive a complete answer this evening. Sorry. I'm going to try and give a more complete answer in the next two or three sessions. What I'm going to try and do is to start building a framework which provides some biblical perspectives on these psalms which help us to start approaching them more wisely. Hey, look, if this is the first time you've ever really tried to take these psalms seriously, don't expect to knock them off in 25 minutes, right? You thought this was going to be difficult, and it is. But let's at least start. And there are seven, I know there are six numbered ones here, but I, I, I thought of a seventh one. And that makes me feel much better, right? Uh, seven biblical insights which help us to understand the imprecatory psalms 
And six out of the seven are exemplified by Psalm 5, and I want to show you how. They are deliverance, righteousness, mercy, theocentricity, justice, that's the missing one, enemies, prayers. Right, let me go through those one at a time and flesh them out. Number one, according to the Bible, the Lord rescues his oppressed people precisely by judging their enemies. The way in which God shows mercy to those who are oppressed is by overthrowing their oppressors. Biblically, you cannot coherently pray for somebody to be liberated from oppression without praying for the overthrow, one way or another. Come to that in the numbered point five, enemies. Without praying for the overthrow of those who are opposed to them. And it's probably because we live in a relatively pampered and easy to be a Christian part of the world that this is not obvious to us. Let me tell you, if you lived in South Sudan right now, you would not need me to tell you this. So verses 1 and 2. David speaks. Give ear to my words, O Lord. Consider my groaning. Give attention to the sound of my cry, my King and my God, for to you do I pray. These are the opening words of a psalm about a man who is deeply, deeply grieved, wounded, frightened, being harmed and in fear of his life because of the people about whom he's going to pray in the next few verses. And in order for him to pray those prayers of imprecation, 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 later... He's got to pray that the Lord will overthrow those who are oppressing him. And these are prayers for the community, and so the same might be said of the whole people of Israel. Deliverance. The Lord rescues or delivers his people precisely by overthrowing their enemies. Second, righteousness. One of the consistent patterns that Dr. Jenkins, Reverend Dr. Jenkins, highlights in the imprecatory Psalms is that the person praying the prayer must be innocent of the sins being identified. And you see this in Psalm 5. Verse 3. O Lord, in the morning you hear my voice. In the morning I prepare a sacrifice for you and watch. For you are not a God who delights in wickedness. Evil may not dwell with you. You see what he's saying? I'm, I'm praying... I'm sacrificing appropriately because you're not a God who will tolerate unfaithfulness. Verse 5. The boastful shall not stand before your eyes. You hate all evildoers. You destroy those who speak lies. The Lord abhors the bloodthirsty and deceitful man. And not just the bloodthirsty and deceitful man who's on my case right now. If I'm dishonest, if I'm bloodthirsty, if I'm deceitful, if I'm boastful, if I delight in wickedness, then the Lord will destroy me too. Verse 8 makes this extremely clear. Because David prays that the Lord would lead him in righteousness. Lord, lead me, O Lord, in your righteousness because of my enemies. Make your way straight before me. Why does it say because of my enemies? Well, it's because of what he's about to pray concerning his enemies. Lead me in righteousness, Lord, that I don't fall under the judgment that I'm about to pray about them. And verse 12, you bless the righteous, O Lord. And this is a... Very important point we're going to come to again and again. What happens when we pray the Psalms of Imprecation is that we are actually shining a light on our own lives and our own hearts. And God help us if we are guilty of the things about which we 
pray and sing. We're going to sing Psalm 5 tonight. I hope we've got no liars in the room. No deceitful men or women. Because don't you think the Lord answers prayers when they're prayed? Don't you think the Lord despises, despises hypocritical prayer? Mercy, then. The third principle or perspective. This is the one that often causes a lot of heartburn to people when they're thoughtfully trying to wrestle with these psalms. Fact is, we are still guilty of other sins, even if we're not guilty of the particular sins that we're praying about. And so, always, when we pray for deliverance, we are praying on the basis of God's mercy. We're not saying, Lord, I've been righteous in every single thing that I've done, and I've never committed any sin that I've needed to be forgiven for, so I can safely just sort of stand here and ask you to deal with all the nasty people in the world. It's true that the psalmist talks about his righteousness as an aspiration or as a gift, but it's not the case that the psalmist ever claims to be morally perfect in every way. And so the psalmist needs God's mercy in order not to fall under judgment for some other psalm of imprecation. For example, verse 7. But I, through the abundance of your steadfast love, will enter your house. There's only one way into the house of the Lord. It's on your knees. The door is very low. You'll bang your head and fall over if you stride in, chin held high. Or perhaps verse 11. Let all who take refuge in you rejoice. Spread your protection over them. You notice the imagery of the Lord protecting and saving those who need him to save them. This is not proud men who have nothing to be ashamed of. This is people who are crying to God for mercy. And it's only by his mercy that we're delivered from these curses themselves. Number four, theocentricity. I was just trying to find a one-word way of saying God-centeredness. Actually, God-centeredness is one word, just with probably two hyphens. But anyway, you can forgive. So theocentricity, God-centeredness. The crucial point to notice here is that the enemies against whom we pray are in the first instance the enemies of God, not our enemies. And you see this, we've seen this already in um, verses... Uh, 4 and 5 and 6. The boastful shall not stand before your eyes. You are not a God who delights in wickedness. The Lord abhors the bloodthirsty and deceitful man. Or verse 10. They have rebelled against you. End of verse 10. The fourth line of verse 10. You get this actually quite frequently. It's in Psalm 139 as well at the end. Um, the, 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 the final quarter of Psalm 139 is a, an imprecation. And it very clearly highlights that it is, it is the, it's not that we're enlisting God to fight on our side in our petty quarrels. Rather, we're joining with him in his mission to deal with evil in the world. And we'd better not be on the wrong side of that if we're going to pray it with sincerity and earnestness. Justice, I want to insert this extra one because I think probably Dr. Jenkins mentions this, but I missed it somewhere and... But I, I was thinking of this earlier, and it just struck me. There is a, 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 a sense in the Psalms of Imprecation that those who are being prayed against receive back what they were trying to do to others. People get what they deserve. There is a sort of balance um, in if somebody is 
acting in a particular way, they'll fall into the pit they've dug for themselves, that kind of imagery. And again, you see that here in verse 10. Make them bear their guilt, O God. Let them fall by their own counsels. It's a fascinating way of putting it. These are people who speak dishonestly. And the prayer is that rather like Ahithophel, the the, um, ungodly former counsellor of King David um, in the books of Samuel, that they will be led to give advice which proves to be their downfall. And you do see this. I'm afraid I've seen it uh, too many times in churches uh, where people in positions of power have sought to humiliate others and have found themselves humiliated. It's a tragedy both ways, but it's a just tragedy insofar as it's the result of God acting in judgment against somebody who has acted in an ungodly way. They get what they deserve. Number, number five of the numbered points here, but the sixth point. Concerning the enemies for which we pray, we might pray for our enemies to be spared or to repent. And this is uh, an emphasis which is more implicit in Psalm 2, but of course you recognize it, sorry, in Psalm 5, but of course you recognize it from Psalm 2. And just a reminder that Psalms 1, 2, and 3 form a kind of introduction to the Psalms. In Psalm 2, you've got these wicked nations of the world and their wicked kings who conspire against the Lord and against his anointed one. Well, what does the psalm pray? Therefore, O kings, be wise, be warned, O rulers of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear. Rejoice with trembling. His wrath can flare up in a moment. Blessed are all who take refuge in him. There's an invitation there to precisely the people against whom the prayer of judgment is being prayed. And again, we'll find several of these in prayers like this in the Psalms. We'll look at them in future weeks. And finally, point six. These are prayers. Just think about that for a second. These are prayers, not narratives. What we're actually doing is praying that the Lord would act. And the vast majority of the Psalms of imprecation, the imprecatory psalms, are dominated exclusively by that theme. What we're doing is we're saying, Lord, when it's time for you to act, you act. It is actually, in a sense, a relinquishing of, divine, of, of the prerogatives to take the law into our own hands. We're not going to take the law into our own hands because we trust that the Lord will do so. Now, again, Dr. Jenkins... I think I'd probably disagree with him here a little tiny bit. Gulp, that makes me frightened. But he does point out one psalm where there's an exception to that. And I want to just conclude with this. Right at the end of the psalm, Psalm 149, he points out that this does speak, Psalm 149.6, of two-edged swords in their hands to execute vengeance on the nations and punishment on the peoples. And this is the prayer that what would happen is that the righteous are able to take up weapons against the wicked who are oppressing them. And I don't want to deny that that theme is there. It's it's here in Psalm 149. But it is striking to me, if you just look more closely at Psalm 149, and if I get Stephen Jenkins on the podcast, I'm going to ask him this, and he'll probably set me right on it. And so you should listen to him, not to me, when it comes to you know, the study of the Hebrew Psalter. But just look more closely at verse 6. 
This is a psalm of praise. It's encouraging all the people of God to pray and sing praise to God. Let the high praises of God be in their throats and two-edged swords in their hands. Now, what do you notice about that? It's, a, it's the standard form of Hebrew poetry. It's parallelism. The two sides of the verse are, if you like, explaining each other. And so I think what we might say is, there's this kind of halfway house. On the one hand, you could say, we take up arms against our oppressors. I'm not sure that the Psalms encourage that, at least not consistently. On the other hand, you might say, no, the Psalms are just prayers that God would act. And I think there is a lot of that. But there is this middle way, isn't there? Where what you say is that, As we pray and as we sing, in particular, the Psalms, we are going to war. We are taking up the two-edged sword of the Spirit. Double-edged sword, in Hebrews, is the word of God that we're taking up. And so these are, as one writer put it, the war songs of the Prince of Peace. As we take the Psalms on our lips in song, which we're going to do in a moment with this psalm, we're going to war. Or more properly, we're singing to the Lord and asking him to go out to war to fight for us, and particularly to fight for our brothers and sisters in Christ who really are oppressed, who really do need deliverance from their enemies, about whose enemies we can do nothing because they're in you know, North Korea or Mogadishu, except we can pray. We can sing the war songs. We can sing the war songs so that the Prince of Peace would go forth and fight for them. So that's what we're going to do later this evening. Before we do that, let's pray together. Merciful and gracious God, we pray that you'd hear our prayers, all of them, that you'd answer them in accordance with your righteousness and your wisdom, and that you'd give us the courage and the integrity and the self-understanding and the the biblical vision to pray all of the Bible. Not to be frightened of the sharp edges, but to grow in our faith and our understanding as we dig more deeply into its riches. And we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.